The following programming has been made possible in part by the generous support of BITS, Blind Information Technology Specialists. An affiliate of the American Council of the Blind, BITS provides career development for computer professionals. For over 50 years, BITS has been on the forefront of industry, promoting and advocating on information access and technology that improves the quality of life for people who are blind and visually impaired. Learn more about BITS programs and how to become a member by visiting their website at www.bits-acb.org. Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Good evening and welcome to Tuesday Topics. I'm your host, Paul Edwards, and we have uh, Rick Morin, who is hanging about, and Debbie Hazelton, who's actually going to stand in as our hand raiser, and of course, as usual, we have Larry, who is streaming for us this evening. I am really looking forward to um, tonight's program because I get an opportunity to talk with someone whose mind I admire a lot. Um, those of you who might have read my introduction to this Tuesday topics will remember that uh, that I talked about the first time that I got an opportunity to uh, to meet with this gentleman. Uh, I ended up spending all kinds of uh, of time talking with him just because the ideas that he had were so interesting and his approach to conversation and to thinking um was was such fun so uh we're going to talk quite a lot about him and what he's done we're also going to talk about some of the the books and columns that he's written and then we'll talk about some of the ideas that he has that that have turned me on so welcome mr larry johnson glad to have you here Hello, Mr. Paul. It's nice to be back with you. And we need to share another beer or two. We do. We do. I, I don't, I have not been able to find a good brand of virtual beer so far. Well, maybe we can find some in Omaha next year. We, we will do that. We will do that. <clears throat> so one of the things that I also talked about in my introduction is the the number of books that you've managed to publish and i looked between bookshare and um and bard and i think you have four up there at the moment that's correct yes which is which is pretty cool so let's let's start out with the with not the first one chronologically in terms of getting written but the one that deals with your your childhood in Chicago, um, and, and recording what, what in is progress. that one called? What is that one called, Mister Lair? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Inside my world. Yep. Um, and it's very much about uh, about growing up as a as a blind person in Chicago, and some of some of the interesting experiences that you had there but a lot of your writing is also i i want to say discursive in 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 that you seem to offer a good deal of advice to and i'm not even sure it's necessarily blind people but to people in general would you say that's true yes i would because 
I feel that a lot of the issues and concerns and challenges that we have as persons with a visual impairment are shared by all people. And so we really need to broaden the scope of our discussion and realize that we're more alike than we are different, whether it happens to be that we have a disability or it happens to be that we're of a different color or of a different nationality or that we're old or whatever the characteristic may be. Uh, we are different in many ways, but we're also very, very much alike in that we have the same hopes and dreams as everyone else. Mm -hmm. And you would still accept, though, that, that, that there are consequences of each of those characteristics. I mean, there are consequences of being a minority. There are consequences of being disabled. Yes, absolutely. There are consequences. But also, I would, I would postulate that to deal with those consequences, with those adversities, if you will, uh, we can use many of the same principles of advocacy and of dealing with those uh, obstacles along the way. And that would bring us to a discussion of my uh, second book, which happens to be a kind of a how-to manual that grew mm -hmm. out of um, a series of uh, workshops that I created and conducted for a number of years after retiring from uh, the telephone company. And mm -hmm. that was called You Can If You Think You Can. And it's, a, it's an interesting book um, in that in in that it seems to postulate a certain set of behaviors that can seriously increase um, your ability to live to, to to live comfortably and to be successful. Yeah. Yes. Silence my phone a second. You know, we can't entirely get rid of all of these. Uh, <laughs> Lobo calls that come in. <clears throat> All right. There we go. Um, yes, you're right about that. In fact, if you don't mind, I'm going to use some of the time throughout this evening to read uh, some short excerpts from different uh, of my books, because I think uh, it these uh, illustrate a lot of what my philosophy and thinking are and and what I like to share with people when I'm speaking or conducting workshops or just having conversation. Mm -hmm. So, for example, here is one little excerpt from the <clears throat> You Can book, and uh, it's a story about a group of fog, frogs that were traveling through the woods one day when two of them fell into a deep pit. And the other frogs gathered around, and uh, they saw how deep the pit was. And so they told the unfortunate frogs that they would never get out. And at first, the two frogs ignored their comments and tried to jump up out of the pit. And the other frogs kept telling them to stop that it was no good, you know, you're as good as dead. Well, finally, 
one of the frogs took heed to what the other frogs were saying, and he gave up, and he fell down, and in fact, he died. But the other frog continued to jump as hard as he could. Once again, the crowd of frogs yelled at him to stop, to give up the pain and suffering and just die. Well, he jumped even harder, and by golly, he made it out. And when he got out, the other frogs came up to him and they asked him, hey, why did you keep on jumping? Didn't you hear us? And the frog explained that he was hard of hearing and that he thought that they were encouraging him the whole time. And so what the story is teaching us here is that there are two lessons. First, that there is power of life and death in what we say. And that mm-hmm. an encouraging word to someone who is down can lift them up and help them make it through the day. And a destructive word, on the other hand, to someone who is down can be the final knockout punch and totally shatter their self-esteem. And so the message there is that we need to be careful not only of what we say, but of how we say it, because our tone of voice can send very different messages. And uh, the second lesson that we learn from the story about the frogs is that what we say to ourselves when faced with criticism or failure is even more important. I, I think that's accurate. I, I, I guess that does, does the heart of hearing suggest anything about disability as a third lesson or not? I mean, if he'd been able to hear what they said properly, he probably might, might not have been, been so inclined to jump as he was because he assumed that they were, that they were saying encouraging things. Yes. And, and even more profoundly than that is that sometimes we need to ignore what the crowd is telling us that we cannot do and yes. be more um, assertive in doing what we want to do. Well, and have confidence in ourselves, belief in ourselves. Yep. So Chicago, an interesting place to grow up. Um, and and you didn't uh, exactly grow up in the lap of luxury, I think. Um, <laughs> well, you know, I was born in the Depression. I was born in yeah. 1933. And so those first few years, they were really tough years. And then circumstances caused my mother and father to separate. And so from the age of six... Uh, I was raised by a single mom, along with my brother and other two sisters. And uh, But, you know, we didn't really feel the pain of poverty. Somehow, our mother found a way to make sure that we had food on the table and something to wear. And she uh, had, in many cases, to... Uh, uh, to give up her own needs in order for her children to be able to not want. And so, yes, it was a challenging time, 
But it was a very, very exciting time, too, because as children, we had so much freedom. We lived on a uh, street in far northwest Chicago, and ours was the only house on the street. It was a, a farmhouse, really. And on both sides of us, extended for about a block and a half, was nothing but prairie. Prairie, can you imagine that? What a wonderful environment for children to grow up in wide open spaces. So the prairie was ours, and we could do things with it. We could, we could use it to build a, a baseball diamond, a football field, a track, uh, or, or during the wintertime, it was where we built igloos and, and, and snow forts. And, and so the, the freedom uh, and the opportunity to create our, our own games and use our imagination was truly, truly liberating. And I was uh, very lucky because I was the only blind kid on the block, <laughs> which meant that I didn't know any better that you weren't supposed to run and run into trees and trip over things and fall. I, I thought that's part of normal growing up. It it um, it it made quite a difference, and you didn't you didn't. Um, go away to a school for the blind either, did you? You, en- you ended up staying at home and, and being, quote, mainstreamed long before that became fashionable. Yes, very fortunate for me. The Chicago Board of Education decided to undertake an experiment, which was to bring blind children into three of the uh, schools throughout the city and have a, quote, Braille department there with a specialized teacher uh, as the home teacher. And, uh, and, and so we were integrated into regular school system from the very start. Now, there is often an argument that says that one of the difficulties that, that mainstreaming creates is to make it difficult uh, for blind kids to develop the skills that they need to uh, to have a full social life without being involved in a school for the blind, how would you respond to that in terms of in terms of your upbringing? I don't, I don't think that's true at all. Quite the mm-hmm. op- opposite. I I found that uh, we had the opportunity to socialize among ourselves uh, as blind kids in school, and to socialize with uh, with the sighted kids as well. So. Uh, one thing I think we did learn is we learned the importance of recognizing acceptable behavior within the sighted world. And uh-huh. our t- teacher was very, very instrumental in correcting and coaching us as to proper behavior. You don't rock. You don't move your head this way. You know, you uh-huh. don't look down. You uh, you color coordinate your clothes these were really important lessons very early on and i valued them tremendously i I think there and you didn't you didn't have trouble making friends with sighted kids 
No, not really. Uh, in in um, elementary school, uh, maybe it was somewhat more limited, but in high school, no. And one of the reasons why in high school it became so much easier was because they had a volunteer reader program in high school where the sighted students were given the opportunity to earn I forgot what they called them. They were sort of like merit points as if they uh, volunteered as hall monitors or attendance takers or to be readers for the blind students. And so we were very, very close in touch with with the sighted students because they came to our um, homeroom and uh, and read to us or helped us with our assignments. And so we made uh, lots of good friends, boyfriends, girlfriends, you know, those kind of things blossomed. And uh, so it was really a great socializing program that they that they created for us. One of the other things that you and I have in common growing up was a, a love of listening to the radio. Um, and uh, I, I think that was a pretty important part of your life growing up as well, yes? Absolutely, yes. I loved the world of radio. In fact, I think because of the tremendous success of radio, what they called the golden age, when there were so many programs, dramatic programs, kids' programs, uh, baseball on radio, there was so much there that that I think is what motivated me to want to become a radio person. And, you know, to this day, I think back that probably a lot of my values and my attitude was created by the hero figures that I used to admire and try to emulate listening to radio the lone ranger and you know and, and and you 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 always emphasize nobility and integrity and loyalty and and all those you know really positive concepts and and i think uh, <laughs> i think i still kind of uh, nostalgically think back on that period and and wish somehow we could bring it forward and offer it to some of our young people. Now, now in your book, I think you kind of imply that perhaps blind people were, were more prone to, to, to forming their moral values that way than perhaps other groups might have been. Do you think that's right? I think that's a fair assessment. Uh, I remember, and in fact, I, speak about this in the book inside my world i remember my mother used to say he's in his own little world and that used to rankle me and that used to bother me what what did that mean that i was in my own little world and you know but now today thinking back on it i believe she was correct that my world was much more Interior, in, in interior. I, I, I really did. I think live more in my imagination, and I think that 
And, and to a large extent, we all have our own little worlds. How we, how we understand and interpret uh, what happens around us and to us. And so I think we all really are shaped by our own settings, our own environment, the influences upon us, whether it be adults speaking to us or radio personalities talking yeah. to us. So, yeah, I think that's very true, Paul. You, I, I, I don't know if this happens to you, but it, it occurred to me um, reading over your book and in preparation for this program that um, that you probably had a lot in common with me. And I find myself almost dreaming in old time radio. Um, you know, when when I dream, I'm dreaming dialogues and not not as much, certainly no visual stuff because I've never seen. But but really, no, not a lot of um not a lot of feeling either. You know, I don't sort of jump in a pool and feel the cold water nearly as much as, as I am involved with a lot of dialogue that almost comes straight from, from radio. I don't know if, if, if that's true for you as well. It is now more than before. Uh, when I was growing up, I had some residual vision. Right. I was able to distinguish color and, uh, and and some shapes and so it, i remember having some dreams back then that that mm-hmm. did offer uh, some other you know sensory stimuli but but more and more you're right it has become a question of uh, either uh either conversation or uh, sometimes touch yes yeah yeah I, I think I think both of those happen. So it's interesting. How much I, I don't I don't I don't re- recall much taste or smell. <laughs> no, no, nor me. So, how much difference was there for you between going to elementary school and going to high school? Well, two things happened. One was, unfortunately, I was skipped two grades, which I think in. Hindsight was very unfortunate because it meant that when I got to high school, I was a year younger than all the other students. And that's mm-hmm. a terrible disadvantage it, it is. In, in trying to relate to girls. Uh, girls are, you know, basically <clears throat> mature faster than boys anyway. And to be another year behind them, that was very traumatic. And I was scared to death of girls. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I was too, um, and, and I also skipped a grade, but I failed kindergarten. So I, I sort of only had was even in the end by the time it was over. Um, but I skipped the fifth grade and failed kindergarten. So <laughs> um, in, el- in elementary school, we had an interesting um, attendant transportation arrangement. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, they uh, they assigned, there was a, also a hearing impaired department in the same elementary school. And so they assigned one of the hearing impaired students as our guide attendant to pick us up from home and bring us to school and back home on regular transportation. So on the one hand, I learned a lot about traveling 
on regular buses. And of course, back then we had something called streetcars. And, but I also had my really first exposure to someone with a different disability than mine. Mm-hmm. And it would, it would have been interesting. I, I, I think all of us um, who are our age or, or my age or older um, had the experience of, of having to learn to travel at a time where, the, where there really was no such thing as paratransit, which meant that we had to learn if we were, if we were going to work or if we were going to travel. We, we had to learn to get around using, uh, using buses or L's or trains or whatever we had to use. Um, and I think that made us more independent than I think some blind folks are today. Would you agree with that? Well, yes, but I also think, at least in my situation, the city of Chicago had a really excellent transportation system. Mm-hmm. And so you could catch a bus, and maybe if you miss one, you could catch another bus in three or four minutes. And and the connection between buses and the elevated train or the subway were really very, very well set up so that, mm-hmm. yes, you could get around the city pretty easily and because it was more or less a grid it was fairly easy to memorize so i think that was a great advantage i don't think that that's necessarily the case in you know a lot of other cities that grew up later particularly in the south or in rural communities where you don't have that kind of you know transportation network now you started college relatively early um, and went to a pretty small college to start with? Yeah, I went to what we now call community college. And uh, and I decided to do that first to kind of break into the college system. And so my first two years, yes, were at a community college. And uh, I really uh, integrated into that quite well. The first year I joined a fraternity and and at 16, learned how to chug a lug beer, you know. And uh, <laughs> and the second year, I, I got into the theater group and, and, and found a whole new uh, class and type of, of friends. And they were very, uh, they were very open and welcoming. And so I would have to say that that was one of the happy periods of my schooling where because i felt really very much a part of a group both the the fraternity as well as with the theater group and that's so important to feel part of a group that you belong yeah i <clears throat> i was also part of a theater group i ended up um after after my first abortive attempts uh, on the stage, I ended up doing um, mostly sound for um, theatrical productions after the first one. But but in in the first play, uh, it was uh, a a play about Sacco and Vanzetti. I can't remember who wrote it. I'm, I'm thinking it might have been Thornton Wilder, but I could be wrong. Um, but in any case, it was um, you know I had this this really exciting line. You know, um, please, Miss, can I sleep under the pipes tonight, Miss? Can I please? <laughs> 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 and, 
<laughs> well, the first play that I was in was called The Enchanted, and it was written by a by a Frenchman, and I played a, a an executioner along with another fellow who was about a foot shorter than I. So we were really a a comedy relief <laughs> in this play, and the kind of the <laughs> the the funny thing about it was the um, uh, the director uh, challenged people to decide who in the cast was the blind person, and uh-huh. they picked the wrong guy. They they picked the main character, and he wasn't, of course. It's just that he really didn't know how to act, and and he basically had his hands dangling at his side most of the time. So they felt that he probably must be the blind guy. Whereas I was on stage with uh, Eddie Matthews and we were doing dances and, and going around. And so they couldn't possibly be me. Yeah. A review of, of our production um, came out. And of course I was supposed to be a blind bum. And they said, you know, that, that, Every everybody's acting performance was just absolutely wonderful, but but that the blind bum uh, was was stuck out like a sore thumb as not looking at all blind. So, <laughs> I one other interesting sidebar is that uh, I was not a great talent, but I did get selected, I guess, because of my tallness or mm-hmm. something or other. But uh, <laughs> one of the uh, students, one of our classmates who was part of that cast, and she did not get picked uh, for a uh, for an acting role, was a young lady who later became Kim Novak. <laughs> Rather a good actress. <laughs> so, irony, irony. <laughs> yes. So, uh, involved in in college was initially an effort to learn Latin, but then uh, an, an effort to learn more Spanish. Um, how did that come about? Well, that actually started in high school. My uh, enrolling in, in high school, uh, my teacher told my mother and convinced her that Latin would be a good basic uh, language to learn. And so I was pushed into Latin for two years and I hated it because I couldn't see any usefulness of it. I wasn't going to become a priest. So uh, I didn't know why was I learning Latin. And here my friends were studying Spanish, which was a whole lot more useful and people actually spoke it in chicago Mm -hmm. so in my junior year i switched to spanish and i have to tell you and i will confess that having studied latin for two years it made it so much easier i thought boy this is a breeze that uh i should have done this in the very beginning and then uh, when i went on to community college i continued to study Spanish for another two years. But then when I moved on to uh, uh, my junior year at Northwestern, I had to focus in on my other uh, courses, which uh, were related to my major, which was broadcasting. 
But that gave me a good foundation, and it made me brave enough or audacious enough to think that I could go to Mexico on my own and uh, and do okay with the Spanish that I had learned. And so following my sophomore year, I decided that I would travel to Mexico City and spend three weeks there and uh, and learn the language even better. By this time, I had acquired a guide dog. And so I felt super competent and confident that we could do this. And basically, we did. We had some adventures along the way. And uh, the train trip into Mexico, uh, I was left by the train twice Uh, That was a bit scary for an 18-year-old, and yet Mm -hmm. it worked out okay. So in terms of of having a guide dog, um, your book suggests that that was really a huge turning point for you. Um, And interestingly as well, you, you went to a school in Michigan that no longer exists, or it doesn't seem to. I had not heard of it. No, it no longer does exist. It was called Pathfinder, and it was in Detroit, Michigan. And I don't know when it phased out, but I will tell you this, that they exclusively trained uh, a dog that I had, which uh, I don't know if they still use the Doberman Pinscher, but the Doberman was the breed of dog that they trained, and that was the dog that I got. And she was a very, very sweet and gentle dog. However, a Doberman has a very uh, menacing (laughs) look about it. And so that kind of gave me an extra sense of pride and and of safety, realizing that people would be thinking twice before they came too close. Yep. Um, But but, uh, you you were not you didn't jump up and down using a white cane before, right? You, you didn't love it? Yes. Yes. I taught myself to use the white cane. I didn't have any O&M teacher. I don't know if there were back then. Maybe there were. But I just got a hold of a cane and started using it. In the beginning, of course, when I was growing up and around the neighborhood, I didn't use anything. I just yeah. used the limited vision I had. But uh, but then in about maybe 12 or 13, I saw the value of having a white cane to be able to use that to to get on and off of uh, buses and to go to neighborhoods that I didn't know. And do you think you used the cane as well as an identifier so that people would know that you were visually impaired and would treat you in that way? Well, the only way that I guess we use it as an identifier was when we wanted to cross the street and uh, the traffic was, uh, you know, uh, not letting us. So we would just hold out our canes and dare them to hit us. (laughs) We would. (laughs) (laughs) So you went to Mexico the first time for, for three weeks and then the next year for another two or three? Yeah, that was kind of it. The second time that I went to Mexico was when uh, I had the emergency appendectomy. Right. 
And uh, I guess I was there probably three weeks. And then I went a third time to kind of explore the idea of going to school there and where I might stay, etc. And uh, and then I got all that arranged. And so then in in the fall of 1957, I moved to Mexico as a graduate student. And, and by that time, you were 24, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah uh-huh. excellent. Um, it, 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 it seems to me, and, and, and I don't know how other people um, would feel, but it seems to me that um, it took a fair amount of gumption um, to be going to school in Mexico City, where you've got a language issue, Plus, probably an issue of folks in Mexico not accepting blind people, perhaps as widely as they do in the U.S. Were, were you concerned about that? <laughs> I guess I should have been, but I believed somehow that it would all work out. You know, again, I, it comes back to my mom. She inspired in me so much confidence uh, that I believe that all things were possible. And she would recite that to me and say, you know, just because you're blind, it doesn't mean that you can't do what you want to do. And I That's believed her words. And so I would, in a sense, take on these challenges, these risks, to prove that she was right. And so I felt really kind of stultified in Chicago. I wasn't going anywhere. Yes, I was doing a radio show once a week, and I was doing some sales here and there, and I belonged to an organization. We started a a fraternity of blind people, and uh, that was kind of interesting and all of that. But I, I really felt frustrated that I wasn't going anywhere. And I wanted to do something that would, I guess, make my family proud as well as make me proud. And so I came up with the idea that if I went away to Mexico, that would really be audacious. And I could really then show that I could be independent and live on my own. And and so I think it was in to large measure to try to prove something to me myself and to my family to make them feel proud of me now your first job even before even before you left chicago involved working in what today we would call a sheltered workshop environment is that right i did that uh be- on summers between uh, school and and i i did it more for the the socialization to be with other blind uh, students who were also in college. And so it was more of a, uh, an activity. Yeah, we made a little money, but it was more because of the socialization. And so we would plan picnics and horseback rides and do all kinds of crazy things on weekends and then go to work at the lighthouse during the week. You didn't feel demeaned by that activity, though. No, 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 not at all. In fact, 
it was it was kind of fun. Uh, but what was I would say what we focused on wasn't so much the work. Yeah, we did that work, but what we focused on was uh, <clears throat> creating relationships. Mm-hmm. I think um, I think it's interesting though because. Uh, I, there, there are an awful lot of folks um, of our generation, I think, who ended up doing work like that, um, and and some folks who are younger in states where there simply wasn't a well-developed employment option um, for for blind people or, frankly, for anybody else. Um, you know, there were there were certainly a number of people who spent time in what we would describe as sheltered workshops now. Um, and, and yet, you know, it, it doesn't seem to have harmed them in any way. Um, so well, it's I, I never thought that it would be a career. I thought right. of it as a part-time job that I could pick up 20 bucks a month, a week or so and, uh-huh. and go out and spend it. Yep. <clears throat> you weren't going to save it forever and ever either. <laughs> nope. So it's, it's one thing to plan to go to Mexico um, in order to complete a graduate degree, I can see that I went from Jamaica to Trinidad to complete one, um, and and of and you know going to school in in Jamaica or Trinidad was was just about as as different as as your decision to go to Mexico City to do a graduate degree. But you didn't end up just doing that. You ended up deciding that what you what you wanted to do was a to stay in Mexico, but b to find work in Mexico um, that would be sufficient for you to make enough money um, to live in Mexico. So, tell us a little bit about how you went about that. Well, I discovered shortly after being in Mexico that there was a radio station that broadcast five hours a day in English. And so I said to myself, well, I could do that. I could offer my services to them. And so I I went and I spoke with uh, one of the management there. And he said, well, right now we don't have any openings. And I said, well, I'll even be willing to volunteer. I'll work for free. I just want to get back into radio because it's something I really love. And so I finally convinced him to let me do a one-hour classical music program once a week on Sunday nights. And so I did that for several months. And then I found out that they were paying that hour to another announcer. And so I confronted the gentleman. I said, I understand that you're paying this hour that I'm working to somebody else. Why don't you pay it to me since I'm the one doing the job? And so he uh, acquiesced. And and then, uh, as was wont to happen, uh, most of these Americans were uh, kind of temporary uh, temporarily in Mexico. And uh, so they would come and go. And so there would be new uh, opportunities for doing more of the broadcasting. And so little by little, I kind of wormed my way in and uh, became a more of a regular uh, 
participant. But I will tell you this, that I did it more for the joy and the love of broadcasting than for the money. The The money was very, very, very low. I think, I think we earned maybe $2 an hour or something like that at, at the high pay. So I learned that I had to go out and sell advertising in order to increment my, my commission. And then I learned that I had to teach some English classes in order to increase my income because by then I had acquired a wife and a uh, begun a family. And so you have to find ways of, of paying the bills. And then uh, I also began selling advertising for a couple of English language magazines. And then the advertising manager for one of them decided that he was going to go back to the States and they didn't have anybody to fill his spot. And so I was elect, I was chosen to do that. And so for the last 10 years that I was in Mexico, I was really a full-time advertising manager for a local monthly English language uh, a magazine. And I made more money that way than I did ever in radio field. But the other thing that also happened, fortunately for me, was uh, more radio stations began broadcasts in English. In fact, one radio station went full-time in English. And this radio station became a CBS affiliate in Mexico City. Uh And uh, it then became the main radio station for broadcasting the 1968 Olympics in English from Mexico City. And uh, they had a need for additional announcers, and I was available. So I I got to work there for a, a full week during the Olympics. And so there became opportunities to do a variety of things. I was very fortunate. I also learned how to do film dubbing which is really a lot of fun where you're translating foreign films into English and you have to do it in segments of like uh, a minute and you memorize your lines and you have to say them at the same cadence as the actor who is saying those same lines in their language. Uh, And uh, it has to kind of, lip sync so that to the person watching they think that that person is speaking english that does um that that is not an easy skill i would i would think for a blind person to be able to grasp well it it became a, a, a timing issue uh you just knew that you had to say hey joe what do you think you are doing And so they would tell you, no, wait a minute, you need a little shorter pause between you are doing. And so you you just learned the timing of it, and you didn't actually have to see the person speaking, but just know the cadence. Uh And it was great fun. I loved doing that. Also, I had the opportunity because of the many more uh, broadcasts in English, I had the opportunity to 
do a lot of commercial voiceover work, which uh, was really a, a, a very profitable and uh, very, very interesting because you had to do all kinds of commercials, some that were fast-paced, others that were very folksy and, and so forth. And, and so that was a very much of a high point for me to learn how to phrase uh, uh, sentences and uh, messages so that they would come across. And, and again, there was a timing issue was very important because if you have a 30-second right. record a commercial that's uh, 55 words, you have to speed it up a little more. If it's only 47 words, then you have to slow it down a little bit. And so the, they would, you know, uh, start the, the tape recorder running and, and, and you would try to have a sense of how long is 30 seconds. And, and um, sometimes you'd, you'd end up having to do it two or three times, but after you'd heard it the first time, you pretty much knew what you were going to do. Yeah. So usually I would read it. I, yeah. I would re- read it from Braille, but uh, yeah. And, and uh, after a sense, after a while, you, you have a clock in your head that tells you yes. it's yeah. 60 seconds. It's 30 seconds. It's, it's, it's amazing how that works. Um, you, you, you really do. And the more you do it, um, the, the, the more that clock functions. Absolutely. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, I find that I can, that I can judge what 30 seconds is or what 60 seconds is um, pretty well now. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and it didn't take me long when I was, when I was doing uh, voiceover promos for Tuesday topics to, um, to, to get to a place where I was pretty sure that the first time that I recorded it, as long as I didn't screw up too much, it was going to be about 53, 54 seconds, which is what I was aiming for. You just, you just get used to it. So I think you're right. However, two two questions, and then we'll move on to some other things. First one is Braille. Did you find that grade two Braille was adequate for you? Did you use your own shorthand? Did you use grade three Braille? I I did use my own shorthand when taking notes in class because grade two was not fast enough to keep up with the uh, uh, with the with the professor's delivery. Mm-hmm. And uh, since, oh my gosh, uh, that's some thunder we're getting outside. Uh, a number of the classes that I took at the university uh, were in Spanish. So I had to come up with a shorthand in Spanish as well, because mm-hmm. Spanish words are longer than English words in a lot of instances. And so to say something in Spanish, you... Uh, you would use more Braille space if you were actually writing out each word. So, so yeah, it was important to come up with shorthand. I never did conquer Braille grade three, though. Yeah, I, I, I enjoyed it. But so, so for the most part, though, when you were doing the voiceovers, you would you would essentially write your stuff out in more or less grade two. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I have to tell you something about Braille. I hated Braille in the beginning. Absolutely hated it because our teacher in first grade gave us homework in Braille 
every night. And we had to do it on the slate and stylus. And I absolutely re resisted it and, uh, and tried to avoid doing it. And, uh, but she was uh, dogged about it. And she insisted <laughs> that we needed to become proficient in Braille. And of course, you know, today I bless her and thank her because it's been so important for me. So the other the other thing that I want to point out about your your Mexican experiences is you would not have survived if you had been passive. You had to go out and look for the additional jobs that would in fact enable you to support your family. Would you agree with that? Yes, you have to be alert to opportunities. Uh, opportunities are there. Alert to them and make it be known that you're looking for opportunities. When I, uh, first of all, uh, was uh, invited to be part of a, uh, a team of, uh, of three, one uh, young American girl and a professional Spanish-speaking actor to record... Uh, an English meeting is being recorded to record a uh, a language course in in uh, to teach English as a second language. Um, I uh, befriended the author of the course, and uh, out of that friendship, was hired by him to be an instructor. So that wouldn't have happened if I had just been quietly accepting the role that I was picked for. One of the things that I've said, and, and, and I'd, I'd kind of like your comments, is, is that in a way, um, those of us who, who didn't do a, some of our growing up anyway within the United States where there are expectations in terms of voc rehab and other things, um, actually probably became more assertive and more independent than we than we might have had we had we done all of our growing up in the US would you agree with that I guess it's hard for me to transpose myself and say well you know what what would have be, become of you if you had stayed in Chicago and I can't really know the answer to that but I can agree with you to this extent that there were some challenges that had to be overcome in Mexico that I yeah. probably would not have had to overcome in the United States. But I was very fortunate that I had a tutor or a mentor who showed me the bus system. And so I learned the bus system of Mexico City as well as anyone else who was blind in Mexico City, and probably as well as I knew the bus system in Chicago. And that was critical to being able to get around later when I was a freelance advertising salesman. I guess, though, what, what, what was certainly true for me um, was that whether, whether I liked it or not, 
uh, I was perceived um, as as having more opportunity and more potential as a blind person in in a third world country than a lot of the folks um, who originated there and who grew up there, and I and and I think that um, I I I think that that helped. Um, you know, I had to be assertive. I had to be pushy, but and I suspect you did too. Um, but I, but I also think we were we were viewed differently um, than than say the the, the run of the mill blind people in in, yeah. in Mexico. Yes, I, I agree with you there. And blind people in Mexico. Maybe even today, but certainly back then, were either thought of as beggars or they were thought of as somehow being super intelligent right. and, and knowledgeable and maybe intuitive. And, and I would often be called maestro, which means yeah. master or teacher. Mm-hmm. Whereas I was not either one of those things, but uh, there would be a certain, I don't know, a degree of uh, respect, admiration. And I guess maybe it's because I, I dressed fairly well and I spoke fairly well. And so there was this attitude, well, if you're not one of those beggars, then you must, <laughs> must be at the other end of the scale, yep. right? Yep. So what what was it that made you decide to come back to the states? Again, I think it was a sense of I've gone as far as I can with my career, with my uh, ability to provide income to my family. Uh, I didn't really see that I was going to be able to jump to the next uh, level of economic. Uh, uh, satisfaction, but also I felt it was important for my children, particularly, to be exposed to the other side of their family's culture. Oh, what it was like, what it would be like to live in the United States, and so I I made a a, a rather uh, uh, strong effort to try to find a job in the U.S., and it was frustrating because uh, I wanted to find a job with a TV station in California, and I w- took a trip to California, visited a number of cities and TV stations, and got no bites whatsoever. And then a friend of mine moved to San Antonio, and he proposed a business idea, which I thought might work. And so I decided to throw in with him, and I, my family were going to San Antonio, and uh, my wife was not all that excited about the prospect, mm-hmm. but we made the move, and uh, of course, the children were in seventh heaven to discover all the things that they could buy in a Oh, in a uh, connection is unstable. In a 
in a, at a shopping mall, uh, you know, brand new bikes and oh wow, all of this is wonderful Disneyland, you know. Uh, unfortunately, the business venture that my friend and I launched uh, did not work, and uh, so we lost our shirts. And so, <laughs> so then uh, I was faced with a situation of no job, diminishing resources, and a family to support. Uh, and I will admit that it was a tough few years. Uh, we actually uh, had to be on food stamps for a while and had to draw unemployment for a while. And But eventually, a lot of letters and uh, applications, resumes being sent out, over a two-year period, I finally uh, was received, uh, received a few job offers, and I picked the one that I thought would work the best because I wanted to really stay in the private industry. I didn't want to work for the government, and I had some offers to work for the government in Dallas and in Washington, D.C., but I decided I'd rather stay in San Antonio and work. And I don't regret it one single bit. It worked out well. So you you have written books that take you up through Mexico, but you so far haven't written a part of your your autobiography that 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 talks about the your work history in the U.S. Um, do you think you'll ever do that? Uh, it's always a possibility. Right now, I don't think so. What I have done instead, and I think you alluded to this a little bit in your introduction, uh, was uh, I began writing a column for the local newspaper here, and uh, I just ended it. As a matter of fact, after nine years of writing the column, uh, once and sometimes twice a month, and I've really enjoyed doing that type of writing because it's uh, it's more capsulized. It's shorter. I can present a, a point, a, a story, and it's over in, you know, in a couple of pages. And then last year, when we were all faced with being cloistered away and, and uh, having the unknown about COVID-19 of, is it going to touch me or my family? And and the fear and the un- uncertainty of it, I decided to try something different, and that was to launch a, uh, a video um, series. And I had one of my grandsons teach me how to record a video on my iPhone and then how to upload it to uh, YouTube and to Facebook. And I really, really have enjoyed doing that, following pretty much the same motif of maybe three, three and a half minute uh, segments. And and I've done stories or commentaries about everything from the longevity of bowhead whales to what it means to be an American. And so they're not they're not exclusively 
focused on disability issues mm-hmm. Be- because we are not just disability. We are so much more than that. And it's important, I think, for audiences and the general public to know that blind people can talk about things other than blindness. Mm-hmm. And and you've published um, volume one and volume two of those columns, um, and they've been combined, I guess, by NLS into a single book? Yeah, actually, I have uh, done several updates. There were three short collections, and then I did a major collection in 2018. That one has not yet been recorded by Bard. So there really have been uh, seven books, if you want to think of them as individual books. And, uh, and I plan to, uh, publish the collection of the 60 weeks of, uh, videos into a, another collection, another volume later this year. And, uh, I, I don't know if it's appropriate, but I would like to share with you one of those, sure. if, if I might. And uh, this is going to be the the cover piece because um, it is the one that received the most views when I put it out on YouTube. And, and so I decided that I'm going to call the collection by the name of this particular commentary. And uh, I'll tell you the name of it after I read it. So is it because I'm blind that skin color doesn't matter to me? I used to think so. How could it matter if I can't see it? So if everyone was blind, then there'd be no prejudice, right? Well, maybe not. A blind man in Travis County, Texas, filed for divorce earlier this year after 32 years of marriage, claiming that his wife hid from him the fact that she was black. The story would be absurdly funny if it weren't so painfully racist. The man said that he didn't learn that his wife was African-American until a friend told him three weeks earlier. The man's bigotry, no doubt, came from odious thoughts placed in his mind parents when he was a child. Prejudice is not based on skin color, but on ignorance and malice. And then last month, Laura Kennedy A 41-year-old Caucasian woman was brutalized, handcuffed, and arrested in her own home in Washington, D.C. by officers of the D.C. Metropolitan Police Department and the National Guard because they were mistakenly told by neighbors that she was an African-American looter. She was held for eight hours until her lawyers showed up and obtained her release. The police blamed the woman's use of tanning lotion for their confusion. As the patriarch of a large multiracial family, 
I am deeply disappointed and profoundly saddened by our society's apparent inability to recognize all its members as equals and to treat everyone with equal dignity and respect. For in the end, we are all more alike than we are different. We hope, we dream, we love, and the air we breathe has no color. Nice. And it's called? What color is air? Uh Aha. I wrote I wrote a similar similar article for the forum last year called Color Deaf. Um, we, need, we need to say this over and over and over yeah, again. We do. Yeah. We do. We do. But we, and we also I think, you know, need 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 to be clear that that uh it is much too simple and out to say because because we can't see the color of somebody's skin, we have no prejudice. That's that's simply absurd on the face of it. Right. right. That, that was the case with that gentleman in Austin. Unbelievable. <laughs> yes. Unbelievable. Fascinating. I, I uh, it, it it amazes me that it that that at this time um, in our history, he could think that he would have a shot at getting away with something like that. It's uh, fascinating. So let me uh, let me ask you a couple of other questions. And uh, uh, Debbie, we're we're going to begin to start looking for hands in just a few minutes. So sure. we'll we'll see how things go. But let me warn everybody that I'm going to ask uh, Larry a couple more questions. Um, and, and I and I want to ask Larry in particular about um, two things. Uh, first, in, in a couple of places, in, in, in a couple of his books, um, Larry talks a good deal about building coalitions as blind people with the broader disability movement. Um, that, that has not always been a popular thing uh, for organizations of the blind. Um, why do you think it's so important, Larry? Well, I think it's a numbers game. And, you know, the more numbers or the higher the numbers you have, the more power you have. And uh, blind people are really a very, very small percentage of the total population. Share a lot of the same prejudice that people with other disabilities. My belief is that the major prejudice against people with disabilities, as it is against people who represent other minorities, is attitude. If you could change people's attitudes, then so many of the other uh, more tangible changes, I think, could be made possible. You know, if you if you find a uh, a public uh, official who is understanding and willing to listen to your concerns, it's a whole lot more likely that you're going to get that person on your side fighting with you for the changes that you feel are necessary. 
Do you think that do you think that there are attitudinal issues for people with disabilities as well that make it harder for us to 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 be accepted in society or included in society? You mean between people with disabilities? Well, by people with disabilities, as as opposed to to being faced by people with disabilities. Uh, surely, we have some of the uh, blame. I guess you would say we have some of the responsibility and our own actions and behavior. Uh, you know, if we come across as a, having a chip on our shoulder or being uh, unreasonable. Uh, or ridiculing people because they don't know or they have not been educated to the nuances of, uh, of a person who is visually impaired, then yes, of course, we, we're creating some of those barriers ourselves. Huh? You know, we put a lot of emphasis on the importance of having accessibility. Let's have Braille menus. Let's have talking ATMs, of that. And, and then the question comes back, are we using those things? Are we showing an appreciation for them? Are we thanking those people who helped bring them about? So a lot of times it's our lack of gratitude, perhaps, which is stopping more progress in these areas. Yep, I, and, and I would absolutely concur with that. So let's talk about one more thing, and then we're going to open it up to questions. Um, over the past year, or year and a half, um, you and I and some others have been engaged a lot in talking about issues facing older people who are either losing their vision or who are blind. Um, we feel that there is uh, some special needs that that ought to be met. Can can you talk to us a little bit about why you believe that this population needs so much help? Okay, so depending upon whose figures you want to use, there are maybe eight million persons over the age of 55 in the United States who are experiencing vision loss. That's a lot of people. And in our own state of Texas, we have maybe more than a half a million. Now, I don't know every other state's condition, but I can tell you for that half million people, we have an agency which is staffed with 14 specialist to serve the entire state it's just it's it's ludicrous it it is shameful it is shocking the federal government has appropriated or appropriates 33 million dollars each year to the states to provide um, services to older individuals who are blind and this figure hasn't changed in over 10 years. And the money currently serves, according to some reports, uh, 60,000 people. And part of the reason for that, of course, is that 
older persons who experience vision loss don't know where to get those services. And the other part, of course, is if they do find out where to get them, they have to wait in line to receive them. So, and where are we going? Well, the baby boom population is going to pump in another 60% more older persons in the next 15 to 20 years, which means another 60% more persons with vision loss. So it is not just a problem, it is a crisis. And it's amazing that so few agencies and and states are aware of it and doing something about it. I have to tell you that I am very, very pleased to report that some progress is being made. Uh, I've been the issue of services for seniors. They, we don't call them seniors anymore. They don't like that. Services for older people with vision loss for probably six years and uh, was <clears throat> instrumental in getting some legislation passed here in which caused a study to be undertaken to prove what I had been saying all along, that not only is there a lack of services, but there's a lack of coordination and collaboration between the agencies, not only that serve persons who have visual impairment, but other agencies that serve older people that have no clue about how to integrate or expand their services to make them available to people who are older and needing that kind of help. We're talking about, you know, the triple A's, the, uh, right. and we're talking about, uh, nursing homes. We're talking about, uh, the senior centers. We're talking about AARP and we're talking about, uh, healthcare providers. So the whole, the whole, um, uh, uh, panorama of services for seniors has basically ignored uh, seniors, or excuse me, I keep making that mistake, uh, uh-huh. older people with vision loss, and somebody needs to ring the bell. Because after all, Paul, I mean, you and I already are in this category. We are. And everyone else who is listening to this broadcast, if you're not there yet, you're going to be there pretty soon. Because the alternative, you don't want that, do you? <laughs> I, I do not. So, <laughs> so just to just to fill in a couple of mnemonics and I'll let you go on. Um, you talked about AAA, which is the Area Agency on Aging. Yes. And you talked about AARP, which is? Yeah, the Association of Retired Persons. The American Association of Retired People, yep. Yes. Yeah, you know, carry on. Part of, the, part of the other concerns are this. It's not just vision loss that is a critical issue for people as they get older, but they also acquire other disabilities that come along with it. And some studies are showing that people who are identified as having vision loss are more likely to have other health-related issues. Yep. And and the, I and I think the other the other thing that we've tried to highlight is that there is an expectation um, for service providers who serve older 
people who are blind or have low vision, that those services will be delivered by specialized agencies like divisions of blind services. Um, and part in every of that's state. our problem. And, and part yeah. of that, again, has been our problem to emphasize the importance, as it is important, for there to be specialized services yes. and trained personnel, etc. But But we have done it to the point of persuading, perhaps, some of these mainstream organizations and agencies that we don't need them. Yeah. Whereas that that you couldn't be further from the truth right <clears throat> and e- even even if we didn't need them we could sure use some of the dollars they're allocated <laughs> <laughs> that's right and so uh one of the projects of the uh one of the affiliates of ACB uh which is the uh alliance on aging and vision loss has been to make contact with the area agencies on aging and find out what programs do you have that maybe our people might benefit from? And what do you know about services and programs that could be beneficial? So we're hoping uh, we've just begun this project to establish and some dialogues with AAAs around the country. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Miss Deborah, do we have any hands? We do. And before that, I will say uh, if you do want to raise your hand with Windows, it's Alt-Y with the Mac. It is um, it is Option-Y. And uh, with the phone, with the iPhone, it is the raise your hand button in the middle of your screen. And on the phone, 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 <laughs> it is star nine. And so we have Jane, Jane Delano. First of all, um, Paul, I, I really um, have appreciated that we're dotting late. So enough of that. But Larry, I want to tell you that when I was a young sport, like about 16, growing up in Portland, Oregon, I spent a great deal of time in a wonderful coffee shop. Lots of singing, lots of people from all over the country. I met a remarkable young man, and I am here to tell you that whether we can see or not, we have biases that we don't know we have. And sure. They hit us in the face. Or yes. So I met this young man. He sounded so amazing. His accent was English. He was from South Africa. Ooh, I was kind of intrigued and enamored. And as we sat and talked and held him, he put my hand, picked my hand up, and laid it, placed it against his cheek. And so I went on from there, put my hand up to his hair, and it was the same as a wonderful friend uh, and of ours named Eulalie, who had migrated from Mississippi after two attempts to get away from sharecropping. She had migrated to Oregon, and I could not figure out how to address the issue. Finally, I came up with the question, why don't you let your hair grow? That's as close as I could get to, well, are you you black? Are you Negro? And that was a, a revealing 
conversation for both of us. It's made a huge difference in my life, all the rest of it. Um, and I back you up in encouraging folks who are losing their vision to reach out for help and assistance and support from all kinds of agencies, not just services for folks who are visually impaired or blind. And I'm Excellent. a blind person, so end of my lecture, I'm just standing right there with you. And when this... we come back to Texas, I'll find you and see what I can do to help out. Excellent. Thank you, Miss Jane. Um, so, Larry, we, we, we've talked about the, the, the theoretical uh, reasons why it's important for us to, to, to try to take some action with regard to aging. But in each of the individual states where folks live, um, what kinds of actions would, would you like to see folks take in, in order to, um, to, to broaden access to, um, to services for older people who are blind? Yeah, I think uh, each state is is uh, challenged with uh, its own unique um, programs and systems and you the first thing to do is to become acquainted with those yes if you, if you know who your area agency on aging is that's a real plus if you have had contact with the local chapter of the uh, American Association of Retired Persons, that's a plus. So it's building some collaborations, and you do that by reaching out and exploring what services and programs there might be in your community. I just learned yesterday that there is an a program, I guess I would call it, it's uh, under a foundation, and they call it um, SALSA, which stands for, <laughs> it stands for Successful Aging and Living in San Antonio. And I didn't know that this component existed. And, uh, you know, I'm a little bit embarrassed that I didn't know about it. But it it points to the fact that there is much going on, perhaps, that we're unaware of. And we need to reach out, talk to our city council person, to our county representative, and find out what services are there here that are offered to older persons that may need some uh, consulting, some advice, some uh, educating from persons who are experiencing vision loss. If there is a senior center, make it a point to visit with the executive head of that senior center and find out, do they have Braille bingo cards, for example, if they pray, pray, play a bingo, uh, if they have exercise equipment, is that exercise equipment accessible? If they teach computer classes, do they have a computer that is accessible? So it's a lot of research, investigation, and, and creating new liaisons. Excellent. I think I think those are all good points, and and per, one of the other things that uh, that that 
that you guys can think about is when when we get back to more in-person stuff um i am going to try to get a an an affiliate of the acb affiliate on on aging and vision loss started in my state because i think it would be uh really helpful um to have more state affiliates of of that organization there so that we can plan state activities and divide the work so that it's not just one or two people who are doing it all hopefully we can get more people involved in actually working on this issue so that's that's my commitment in florida and i hope that other people will will consider doing the same in other in other places so yeah, mr think, go I ahead think, Larry. i think you're right i think our our greatest danger is apathy right and the fact that we are content to just let other people do things and what i want to offer to you is that you're part of the answer to this crisis because right. it is a crisis and to say well i'm only 42 or i'm only 39 and so i got a long ways to wait well you want things to be better when you get to be 55 or 65 or 75 and so now is when you need to do things don't wait it's it's a question of older people with vision loss should have the training and resources to successfully age in place. That's what it's all about. And they don't today. What all of this, what all of the statistics say uh, is that it, the problem of older people with blindness and vision loss is not a problem that's just, just gradually increasing. It's a problem that is explosively increasing because of the fact that people are living longer and because of the fact that um, <coughs> there are an awful lot of older people who have no vision problems until they get to be 65 or 70 and then suddenly develop some, and, which they're ill-equipped to cope with. And vision loss among older adults also results in other things social isolation yes poor nutrition diminished exercise and physical activity which all in turn affect physical mobility balance and emotional and mental well-being you know the as you get older the likelihood that you're going to have a fall increases greatly and uh and so and and that's even more so for a person who is experiencing vision loss because vision is part of what helps our balance and if you have a dual sensory problem where you're beginning to lose some of your hearing that increases it even more so it's not just the inconvenience if you will of vision loss it's all these other things as well Miss hey guys, Deborah. it's Beth. Hi. Hey, Beth. Oh, How are hi. you? Finally Thank made you. It. I don't know what happened before. Thank you. I'm really enjoying this. First, I wanted to make a quick comment. A lady from Peru once told me that South Americans think of people with disabilities as almost being holy, like having some special essence or power. I was reminded of that when you were talking about Mexico. Mm-hmm. And here's my question. 
If you listen to news conferences or congressional hearings, you'll hear turning of print pages and so many cameras clicking that they almost sound like cicadas. But when a braille display is used, which does make some noise, it seems that blind users and maybe sighted meeting participants say that this cannot be tolerated. What say you guys about this? Thank you. Thank you, Beth. Larry? Go ahead, Paul. <laughs> um, I'm not. I'm. I'm not bothered by, um, by by the noise of um, braille displays. I have an. I have an orbit, um, and I also have a braille me, um, and and both of those are the two displays that are alleged to be noisy. Um, I, I think uh, if if we were to bring Perkins braille writers into public meetings and start banging on them all the way through people might have something to say but i don't i i i don't even think there's any excuse for commenting on the slate and stylus the slate and stylus is a lot noisier than any of the braille displays i will give you a, a funny story uh years ago when i was in college as i said i used to take notes prodigiously and i would use the slate and stylus and there was uh, one class that I had in economics, and the instructor would invariably turn to the blackboard and write things on it and talk about them as she's writing. And as she would talk, I would take notes. And then she would stop and turn around, and I would stop. And then she'd turn around and continue, and I would take more notes. <laughs> and finally, she turned around, and she said, Who's making that noise while I'm talking? <laughs> so I, I sheepishly raised my slate and stylus and I said, I am. <laughs> Needless to say, she was embarrassed and uh, said, oh, that's fine. You can go ahead doing that. But yeah, it's kind of interesting how people will single out certain uh, activities or sounds as being annoying or disruptive but um, we do what we need to do and i think that's part of uh, again right part of self-assertion you say i'm taking notes this is what i'm doing um, how, and, and how did this how did this interfere or did it with your voiceover work reading braille and and the sound of your fingers on the page Larry? Well, voiceover, of course, you can if you really want to uh, uh, prevent that from being a distraction. You can, of course, use a, a headphone. And so you can have it come directly into your ears. I am fortunate in that uh, I am hearing impaired. And so my uh, hearing aids are tuned directly to my phone. So I, I hear what's on my phone and other people don't unless they're right next to me. Did other people ever comment on, on the finger noise? Say when again? You were working? Did, did anyone ever comment on, oh, gee, what's that noise coming through on oh, the voiceover? I, I used, well, of course, when I was working, we didn't have that. But I used to get comments all the time about my Braille embosser. Oh, they hated it because they said it was very noisy. And I said, well, I'm sorry. That's that's what it is. And, uh, but, uh, yeah, they did not like my Braille embosser at all. But they didn't mind the fingers moving across the Braille paper. Mm -hmm. uh, fingers moving I, across the Braille paper? When, yes, when you were reading your voiceover work. When you were doing voiceovers in Mexico? 
Oh, oh, well, oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, it, it never made any noise. It, 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 they didn't pick up the noise. Uh, part of the, the issue is the microphones are really, really very directional. And so I would be either standing or sitting and the microphone would be maybe uh, two inches away from my mouth. And so it doesn't it doesn't pick up the oh, okay. the uh, the Braille script. And, uh, and even you can even slide. You have to do it carefully. You could even slide one page over uh, to another and and it wouldn't pick it up. Right. Yeah. I, so it's I, a kind I of microphone. Had a, had a, yeah. I never had a problem with it either, Beth, when 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 I was doing similar kinds of activities. So um, interesting. Thank you. I appreciate yeah. it. I was just curious. You're welcome. Thank you, Beth. I was just quickly add, Paul, that to the to the last uh, questioner, and I'm sorry I misunderstood your question early on, but uh, you know I was reading from Braille when I was reading those commentaries in that story, and I'm wondering if you heard any uh, of my Braille action while I was reading. Uh, I did. No, I, I didn't, and it wouldn't have bothered me. I was just asking out of curiosity, not not out of, you know, any yeah, kind not, of... Not to be critical, yep. Right. I, I, it doesn't irritate me at all. In fact, I, I love hearing Braille. I love reading Braille, so... Okay. Thank you. Excellent. Uh-huh. Elizabeth? Elizabeth Bowden? Did we not get Jean? We yeah, did not. I, I, this is very bizarre. Oh! The... Something is just fluky with the focus tonight. Jean is from New York and Elizabeth is from Tallahassee, Florida. So we would love to hear from either. Um, they're in the they're meantime- shown as unmuted, but they're not, they don't seem to be able to respond. Larry, um, you, you currently use a, a, a Braille display. Um, do, do you use paper Braille? as much as you use a braille display or have you actually got more into electronic braille though i i use the braille display primarily when i'm uh on the computer and i also use a braille display when i'm on the phone and i'm wanting to read a message and make sure that i understood it carefully other so, than that uh, i use uh paper braille uh tremendously uh all of uh when i for example when i was doing my uh videos on uh youtube <clears throat> i would always braille out my script and uh and read it uh, uh that way uh, to record it on the iphone now have you figured out a way um to to do video where where you can do all of the adjustments so that the picture is perfect, or or do you generally need a little help in order to be sure it's properly in focus? I pretty well have learned uh, the technique for doing it, but before I release it, I always ask for confirmation from one of my kids, and they'll tell me, "Dad, you were a little bit off to the right, or you're a little bit off to the left, or uh, etc." And then I will adjust it accordingly and redo it and send it to them, and then get there okay but you know uh it will actually tell you centered or you know or tilt to the right or tilt to the left so the iphone is gives you pretty good feedback uh on the camera 
Interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, the um, the other the other the other issue, I suppose, is: Do you feel that it's important for blind people to use video? Uh, because a lot of us don't. I am one of those people who avoids using video as much as he can, for instance. Well, it's a choice. I think it depends on, you know, what is your goal? It, what is your, you know, what is your role? What are you trying? Who is the audience you're trying to reach? If right. you're trying to reach a sighted audience, then video is very important. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Um, and, and I'm going to have to, I, I think, uh, break down and become better at it. Um, so far, it's it's just something I haven't done well at. Um, I tell so you a mis- funny, a, a quick kind of a funny story. This morning, I was in a Socrates Cafe class, which uh, is offered by a nonprofit organization here called <clears throat> Alir or. Uh, Academy of Learning and Retirement. It's uh, classes taught by seniors to seniors, or classes taught by old people to old people, if you will. And uh, and and as I was speaking, one of the uh, companions, one of the classmates, says, "Excuse me, Larry, uh, you're upside down. Would you mind turning your camera around?" <laughs> <laughs> because the camera feels the same, whichever it's upside down or right side up. So, oh, it I, does. I appreciate that feedback. Yep. I, of course, I may look better upside down than I do right side <laughs> up. Well, you you wouldn't probably appreciate this, but uh, we could not. Uh, I I thought I was going to have video as well, and so I was trying really hard with Rick to get my video started. And then we learned from Debbie that no, there would be no video. But my uh, video uh, with Zoom is I have a, a background of a of a a picture of the Earth, and so it looks like I am floating in space with the earth behind me nice and, and uh so, so i i tell them i do that so i don't have to worry about the messiness of my room nevertheless miss liz Bowden is with us so all right liz make your comment you wanted or to question, say something hey yeah okay yeah i i agree with the um idea of sort of mobilizing and stretching out the services that we give to our older people because the danger of letting all the agencies do it and and that's it is that sometimes depending on the administration of the agency you get a very narrow opinion of what services can be and how much people can be independent and i think if if we um you know stretch that out a little bit i don't see why uh, different communities couldn't um, employ sort of roving um, vision specialists to go out to all these uh, nursing homes and AARP and the senior centers and all and teach them about how to interact with their older uh, visually impaired patrons because it's always good to get another viewpoint. Folks would not necessarily know that in Florida, Virtually all of our training services for uh, older blind folks 
are actually delivered by private agencies within the community rather than uh, by, say, the Division of Blind Services hiring people to deliver those services. So uh, it, it may even be in the interests of um, those private agencies um, not to involve um, area agencies Outside. on age. Yes. Yeah, it is. It's this big um, sort of tiger fight. Yeah, that oh, we're the only people that can give this, and don't let these people in. Right, and um, and then the other thing is, is that the people only get the services or the abilities that are fed or funneled to them through these agencies, and sometimes depending on the individual teacher or how they feel about blind people, and some of them are very negative. They don't get anything. Mm-hmm. Then, of yep. course, you know, they have the, the surveys that, that the people fill out at the end. And those are construed because they don't know what kind of services could be available to them or what they could achieve with better services. And they're going to take anything that they can get because they think that's all they're owed. Yep. Mr. Larry, any comment? Yes. Uh a number of these agencies, if not all, have some uh, classification of advisory committee, and it really behooves us to have a person representing yeah. our issues on that advisory committee. Now, understanding, of course, that advisory committee is that. It's not a governing board. It is offering advice and suggestions, but it is critically important to have a presence on that because that very often will bring about a discussion and an opportunity. That's correct. However, oftentimes the advisory committees are made up of the products of that center and the training place. And and if someone on the outside, say, you know, a very independent blind person gets to be in there, those people gang up on that person and let's say, bully them um, and don't let them share any of their ideas or methods or any other sort of uh, more positive um, infusion of ideas. So that, I understand that's, you know, I know that's logically in theory, that should be how it goes, but often it's not. Yeah, I think Paul would agree with me on this. So this is where advocacy, advocacy and self-assertiveness really are important. And there is a gentleman uh, by the from Florida now, by the way, uh, Anisio Correa, who is uh, working on a project with the National Coalition on Aging and Vision Loss to create some advocacy training. Uh, project for persons who are older and who experience vision loss or want to advocate for greater inclusion of uh, persons with vision loss who are older. Yeah, Anisio is great, folks. He's um, he is. We're we're very glad to have him in Florida. Um, he is. Um, I'm actually closer to him now than I was. He's in Flagler County, which is um, okay. maybe 40 miles south of where I am now, um, which is exciting. Um, yeah. So sometimes you've got to be a bit of a 
what shall I call it? Uh, a rebel or a, yeah. a outspoken uh, advocate and not worry about the consequences. And if there are, if there is resistance, there's other alternatives. Uh, you can go and speak directly to the executive director and say, mm-hmm. I want to lay out some uh, issues, some concerns, but they're being blocked by this committee. Right. The executive director may be the one that's blocking them as well. Well, you can, but you, you can also. But you could. You could, yeah, you I mean, could go to yeah. that. Then, then, then you, that. Yeah, then you resort to maybe your city council person or, yeah. your, or your county representative. Or your local newspaper. That's right. Yes. So there's always another avenue to follow. So, Terry, did you have an issue you wanted to raise? Uh, no, but she got me in as I co-host. Got her in to see if she yeah. could and get anybody else able to. I'm going to give it a try right now. Um, has Pam spoken yet? She no. has not. I tell you, this has really resonated with me um, so much of what um, what Larry has said. I, too, was a product of public schools and something of an experiment. I'm a bit younger than Larry, but uh, a whole lot, I'll bet you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I figured about 19 years, Uh about 19 years younger. Um, But it really has resonated with me, and and I can really identify with other than I did not do theater work, but so much of what you said has has just really, really nailed it. And I, too, appreciate the fact that sometimes you do have to be a bit of a rebel because where I live, uh, I am in a state where blind services are controlled by, well, what is basically a school for the blind. And, you know... If you want to get good technology training, that's not where you go because you're not going to get it. Or if you want to get really good uh, job career preparation, you may not get it. Um, And it's just very sad that um, the services are so often so limited. Six area code 608. Hello, this is Peter in Wisconsin. Um, I I grew up just north of of you, Larry, in that um, uh, I was in Kenosha, Wisconsin, growing up. So, um, but that uh, I I'm wondering as um, I lost my sight when I was uh, nine, and and um, I'm wondering that when they talk about living in your own little world, that um, that. I think that blind people live in a world of metaphor that is much more expansive than what most sighted people uh, experience, and that. Um, and I'm wondering if that, um, uh, if that that world of metaphor was part of what made you able to um, sort of overlay what you knew from the mass transit system in Chicago to. 
uh, the mass transit system in Milwaukee, number one. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and then my other comment would be is um, I I think that one of the problems that we have as blind people is we we experience a kind of helplessness, and and therefore we don't think that we have the power to make the change. Uh, or to make changes in the system around us, and realize don't realize that the kind of power that we have in communal problem solving, and um, um, and, and then because of that sense of helplessness that we um, and and the fear of blindness that we don't begin um, in especially in the aging community. Uh, learning the skills that we're going to need to have when we're blind before we're actually blind. Thank you, Peter. Uh, Mr. Larry. Yeah, I I appreciate your comments, and I I really do um, echo them. And I will I will venture to say something that may <clears throat> some folks might disagree with, but I do believe that the world of a person who is blind is indeed a much smaller world and much closer and much more limited. And that's because of the reach of our other senses, the reach of um, our senses of touch and smell and hearing are geographically, locationally, much more reduced than the sense of seeing. That's interesting. Would, would you say that's intimate, uh, a more intimate world rather than smaller? Uh, that's a good word, yeah. I don't mind that. Intimate, uh, closer, and, uh, and, and, and more um, limited, more, more restricted. But, you know, there's an advantage to that because in reflecting about it, I think that it allows us then to perhaps be more reflective, more meditative and more contemplative than perhaps a person who is sighted because they have so many distractions that are challenging their attention. And so I think we have the ability, and I know I have done this, we have the ability to kind of tune out to what's going on around us, if we so choose, and and to uh, live within our own thoughts and our own ideas and plans. Larry, give us your email address if if you would uh, if you would uh, allow people to, to drop you a note. Surely, it's L A R J O, and then the number one at Prodigy Prodigy being. P-R-O-D-I-G-Y. Excellent. Thank and you will, so much for being I here, will, Larry's. I will, expend, I will extend this wish, Paul. The, yep. My, my wish is that for everyone, you have plenty of love to share, money to, sh- money to spare, and friends who care. Nice. Good night, everyone. <laughs>